You're listening to Tasting Together with Maroki Tong and Andre Fruit. Well, Andre, I am legit lagged. You don't say. It was it was funny. Like we connected a little bit late for the recording session because um, baby Spencer was crying and needed a diaper changed, and you know she's eleven months old. And we're at the point where she's developing a little personality. Um, I don't think she's going to be a morning person. She <laughs> had like full. Given that you and Anya are morning people, Anya Anya is not a morning person. She is. A... I mean, she's a trained morning person. No, even then, I, I, it's a like she's a don't talk to me before my coffee or I'll cut you person. <laughs> but you really and truly are a morning person. I am. So I was a little bit sad when I picked her up from the nap and her fat lip was like out. She was just full on pouting. And then I connected to the meeting and you seemed a little bit like completely disoriented. Like, who? What? Where? And I was just like, ah, uh, jet lag Maroki. Jet lag Maroki, 13 hour time difference. It's a time. It's a time. I would say that uh, traveling to Asia, it. Traveling to Asia isn't so bad. I think part of it has to do with the excitement. You know, you've arrived, you can't wait, and you force yourself to uh, stay awake and and be energetic. But when you come back, my God, does it impact me. And uh, I can't do what I did in my, you know, late teens and 20s, which is... I know. It's the worst part about getting old. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you have to get up and continue on with with life. But I'm sure all of you listeners are not here to listen to me whinge about my jet lag. No, I'm I, sure you're all here to talk about the more exciting parts. Yeah, I'm like I'm chomping at the bit here because I I really I want to dive right in. I've actually been waiting the two weeks to unpack this with you. Um, like the interview with uh with Chef Alvin still blows my mind. Uh, I don't often get FOMO, like the fear of missing out, but um, like I full on was jealous that you got to spend that much time with a chef, but not just that. When you listen to someone talk and their philosophies align with your views on hospitality, like with the ADX Wine Company, what I try to do, and, and I mean, let's face it, there's a ton of wineries in Niagara that open their doors, put a $100 price tag on their bottles, without any pedigree, without any history, and just expect the market to support that, where I hate to let anyone in on a secret listening to this, it doesn't cost $100 to make a top-level bottle of wine, even if you've got more loan payments and mortgage payments and startup costs to pay. Um, you know, to listen to a chef who's trying to keep his costs down so that as many people can experience the food as possible was really inspiring. So go back and listen to last week's or two weeks ago's episode. But the question I want to put to you, Maroki, because you've now had the Michelin star experience. You know, I've been critical of the guide because I don't feel that the guide in Toronto is offering the Michelin experience. Was the two star Michelin experience worth it? I think it might have uh, ruined a lot of my other fine dining experiences in Hong Kong after going there because I went there within the first week and I've never dined at a two-star Michelin place so I don't really have much standards to go for like I, I don't really know what I should be benchmarking it against but I would say that the experience was quite exquisite 
It was artistic. The the service was top notch. It's friendly. It's unpretentious, and I think that's extremely important. I don't know if all Michelin star restaurants are like this, but it was extremely unpretentious, right? Like I brought my parents there. My parents don't love the you know white tablecloth experience. I think my dad does turn his nose up a little bit at the <laughs> fine dining world, and my dad's someone who has had to dine in a lot of fine dining establishments throughout his career and just business life. And I think he never really liked the snobbery and the pretentiousness of it, but it was really wonderful at the, the various staff members attempts to connect with my parents and make them feel comfortable, explain the food to them. And the food at Bow Innovation is very much what it's called. It's innovative, right? It's kind of pushy. It's, it's a little bit of molecular gastronomy, a lot of deconstruction. It's about storytelling. Uh, it, it, you know, everything ties to a piece of art. It ties to the plating. It, it, it's an um, it's an ode to Hong Kong's history, and I think that resonated a lot with my parents. I think it was wonderful to kind of see them. You know, they would bring up something that was an inspiration, like they brought this old bamboo uh, liquor that a lot of construction workers drink on site. My father's like, yeah, we also snuck that to the camp as kids, and they weren't using that in the food per se. They like spritzed it on as an essence at the end. The entire food was more about bamboo. But you could see the nostalgia. And I think for me, it was one of those moments where you realize how much of an art form people make the entire dining experience. So it's not just about the flavors on the plate. It's about the plate itself. It's about the rationale behind the plate. It's about the service. It's about every single nook and cranny of the food. So you're not, you're not leaving any stone unturned. And I think I wonder, I wonder if I had to say what was a Michelin star experience is when you ensure that there's no stone left unturned and unaddressed when crafting the dining experience. I don't think I could have said that better myself. And the, the two things that you said beyond that amazingly eloquent, like final statement of what michelin dining should be is the thing you said at the beginning is that it may have ruined your experience fine dining experience for other restaurants there because that's the point of a two-star restaurant so like three stars is supposed to be you know go out of your way be ready to bring your wallet but also create an unbelievably memorable experience and two stars is just below that and i have a feeling the reason why bow innovation doesn't have three stars based on the photos and based you on what you just said has to they do actually with had three they lost a star i'd be curious why they lost a star i have a feeling that maybe the unpretentiousness is part of because i mean let's be real when you set foot in the the even the one two and three star restaurants you generally expect a little bit of pretension but i mean the the service is a very important part of how the guide works so even with pretension expect to be waited on hand and foot with like you said no stone unturned right down to the plates to the cups to the napkins i see you got to experience um the the napkin pills yes i mean and those are pretty common in hong kong too actually for those of you who don't know they basically it's a it's a pill about the size of like a quarter, maybe a loony, and you know maybe as it looks like a tums almost. <laughs> yeah, like like a big tums, and then you pour hot water on it, and it unfurls into this like soft napkin, warm napkin, like warm cloth. It's <laughs> I know the, I know it's hard to like wax nostalgic about a napkin, but um, yeah, they're pretty cool. <laughs> 
Yeah. And and the, the reason why I say ruined fine dining experience, there was a few other spots. I'm not going to name names, but there was a few like places or, you know, nice, like if you think about like top of the line hotel uh, chains in the world or, or some of those, you know, more well-known spots. There were spots I went to later on that week and um, uh, it just did not come close. It's like just because there was a giant price tag in front of the menu yeah. or because it had that name to it did not come anywhere close to the quality of service and experience or even the delivery of um, the flavors in the cuisine afterwards wow i mean that that's i mean that's great that the bar was set so high on the on the downside i'm sorry that that that, you know it was all down from there but okay I mean, uh, it wasn't all down from there there's a lot of other amazing experience like i got a chance to experience net yeah like uh i actually completely by coincidence ended up dining at a third alvin lung restaurant with some friends who booked the restaurant without knowing it was alvin lung's restaurant called forbidden duck and that was also cantonese cuisine uh just done extremely well so that's all peking duck uh you know peking duck and 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 like you know stewed bean curd wonderful experience um and that one doesn't have a michelin star by the way i i found in my neighborhood uh, which is Jordan Station, for those of you who are familiar with Hong Kong and Kowloon. It's a little bit older Hong Kong. They've really brought in a large international community there, an international, uh, like, other parts of Asia. And I had some fantastic Nepalese cuisine mm. when I was when I was there. Um, it was a bar. And it's interesting because these people, it, you know how we talked about Chinese-Canadian cuisine before and how yes. people try and carve out, like, these little niches to meet a certain market? So a lot of these are just bars. They're, they're bars. They're there to... Try and just like uh, uh, cater to the local community. They're serving pizza and spaghetti, but then at the back of the menu is all traditional Nepalese cuisine. And I remember we showed up, and the the the, the server came over, who I um who clearly herself is Nepalese, and she was looking at us flipping past the fries right into the the momos and the 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 spicy fish dishes and she's like are is this what you want I'm like yes this is what we're here for so then she got very excited and was very much like recommending nice certain dishes to us to the point where i'll say well what about these fried momos she's like you don't want fried momos and i guess they fried momos because their customers are more you know they enjoy their fried food but she's like you don't want these fried momos you want this this momo that's put inside their version of sort of like a a, a fish curry and they're like you should have this and i was like oh okay we'll we'll eat what you tell us you're clearly the expert and that was uh, that was absolutely phenomenal and really nothing always beats just walking down the street and picking up a really nice hot steamed meat bun just on the go and i think that's the other thing it's just eating food on the go eating a lot of uh not necessarily street eats but more like small like small hole in the wall bites and eric i took eric to an island called Changzhou, which is um one of the islands off of hong kong's about an hour by slow ferry 40 minutes by fast ferry it's an island where there's no cars so you don't drive there everything is walkable or bikeable oh that's awesome and way of life is a little bit slower there and they just have the most delicious uh, just foods and hole in the wall spots and you just eat your way through the island. I've probably not had a fish ball where the, where, you know, a lot of commercialized fish balls and I'm, I'm sure those of us who are a fan of Asian finger foods, we see the curried fish balls a lot on, on a toothpick, but it's usually quite dense. It's usually a paste. Mm-hmm. These fish balls I had were, you could see the fish flaking off. Oh, interesting. So, 
It was yeah, and, and it wasn't like it wasn't like flaky fish. Like you're not eating fish per no, se. No, I get that, but you could see processed. that it was you could see that it was real fish as opposed to like a, a paste, right? Like yeah, yeah. So I, I, I that's I, I, I'm sure I'm just scratching the surface of everything I ate. If I rolled back through my camera roll, I'm sure I would continue to go down the memory lane of all the flavors that I had there. Well. There, there's one thing yeah. I just I, but before we move on to because because we want to talk a bit about what you experienced in Taiwan as as well. But there's one thing I want to go back to that you did that you know we we like so the Michelin experience is not the be all and end all. Like it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about just because my wife works in in hospitality. But what you talked about going to that restaurant and flipping to the back page of the the menu, I think it's just one of those things that it's the thread that ties all human beings on the planet, right? It's when you have something that you care about and someone is interested in it, how excited they are to share that with you, that you went to the part of the menu that that server was excited about to see that you wanted something that was an authentic part of what she does in her day-to-day. So my advice to people who are traveling, whether it's to France, whether it's to Brazil, whether it's to Chile, is if you find the place to the restaurant, to maybe have the courage, even if you are a little bit of a picky eater, to let the people serve you and make the recommendations and ask people to serve not what the tourists like, but what do the locals eat. And I think most people will be pleasantly surprised because even if you don't speak Portuguese in Brazil or French in France or Italian in Italy, it's a way to experience the authentic culture without yeah, having for to sure. speak and the language. Yeah, absolutely. And there were moments when you could tell that Eric was having a little bit of cognitive dissonance around the <laughs> foods that I was taking to tea. Like one of our local dishes in Hong Kong is snake soup. And okay. I was just like, we're going to eat snake soup. We're just going to eat snake soup tonight. And he's like, oh, okay. Like you could tell he was just like, I'm just going to make that, you know, that moment where you know you have to make a decision on the fly and you're like, all right, that's what it's going to be. Right? I mean, that's it. Me and- eat, eat first, ask questions later. I never, so when I moved to Toronto and went for dim sum, I ordered chicken feet for the first time, literally because I'm a bit of a troll as shock value for some friends because dim sum for a few bucks a plate i could afford to throw that away if i ended up not liking it but just by getting outside my comfort zone because let's face it chicken feet are not part of the prairie experience growing up eating hungarian german cuisine made by my grandparents and french canadian cuisine made by my father but it's one of my favorite things to eat a dim sum now and that's it interesting that being said (laughs) that being said i'm not a fan of the congealed pork blood i tried that but at least I know that I don't like it rather than just thinking that I don't like it. So did Eric eat the yeah. snake soup? He did eat the snake soup. He actually liked it. It's yeah. a pretty sustainable cuisine. Go Eric! Yeah, I mean, if we eat unagi, like if we eat eel at restaurants, we can eat some snake soup. It's, you know, <laughs> the thing is, is that in the end, there's a lot of meats that we as North Americans don't necessarily 100%. partake in. And, and that perhaps even includes like all the be- bits of food right like the awful and the the organs and the well, even things pig like blood. Horse, hilariously you like horse hilariously and andre uh eric got a chance to eat that not on purpose we were at a, a michelin bib gourmand recommended pho place and <laughs> the the pork pho he ordered ended up coming with pig's bunnies i was like i guess you're just about to learn what uh <laughs> pig's blood tastes like <laughs> That's amazing. But, uh, 
but maybe to wrap up the Hong Kong trip, I, I, I you know, if you guys want to see the stories, I have it in my Instagram highlights at nine awesome. ounces, please. So you can guys, you know, and they are all geotagged or tagged with the restaurant. So if you ever are looking at building a food itinerary for yourself or a food and drinks itinerary, I should say, because I definitely did have a lot of bevies, whether it be co- more cocktails than wine. I miss my wine. I'm glad to be home. Wine is quite expensive in, in Hong Kong due to the high duties there. They also notoriously mark up their champagne in Borg- uh, uh, Burgundy and Bordeaux quite a bit. So if you're there and you're ordering from a restaurant, go off the beaten path. Like don't drink Burgundy and Bordeaux, like unless you're buying it from a store. If you're in a restaurant, Go and look off the bean pad. I picked up some amazing wine from Switzerland <laughs> when I was there. It, that, that, that's my little piece of advice to you. Oh, you had, you had Swiss trip, wine. You had Swiss wine. So yeah, I, had I was, Swiss wine. I was, was so focused. I was so focused on trying to pick which part I was going to make a joke of of what you said. I nearly missed that. Um, what did you was it was it Chasselas? Uh It was uh, Kayas and Syrah, I think. Oh, amazing! Swiss wine is one of those big secrets in the world because switzerland is a lot like the okanagan where they don't export a lot of wine and like the swiss franc is quite volatile in terms of exchange rate but you know pretty consistent for the past decade it's been trading quite high so even if you were to export a bottle of swiss wine it would become quite expensive so i think that's fantastic that you got a chance to uh got a chance to taste that yeah, I had some Swiss wine a long time ago on an airplane, I think through Air Canada or whatever, but obviously the little tiny, uh, you know, 200 milliliter bought plastic little bottle that they gave me was not indicative of drinking fine Swiss wine. So I'm really glad to have an experience. Craft cocktails are also making a showing in the history. They've had, a, they've had a history of being really sweet or tasting very strongly of alcohol because bartenders don't want to be accused of not putting in enough. So back then cocktails used to basically just taste like drinking rubbing alcohol. So, but craft cocktails are becoming a thing. But to kind of um, wrap up the visit, actually completely by coincidence on the, final day we were in hong kong we actually managed to get out and go hiking my uncle took us out to one of his favorite spots way out in the northwest and you hike and then you hike into a village and you end up eating sort of this outdoor old school chinese restaurant where they get super fresh fish and eel they fish it right out of the tank they cook it for you on the spot they had tea that they specifically go to fujian province to get bring it back and um, you're able to buy it it literally comes in cheap ziploc bags i did buy you a bag andre because i know you love your teas and it was delicious tea going back home that yeah going back home that night uh eric and i were like well, what are we going to eat? It's our our last night here. And, you, you know, you could tell we were working ourselves up into a frenzy of like, what what should our last meal in Hong Kong be? <laughs> we were getting so stressed out as we walk into my uncle's apartment. There's almost a dozen people in there. And you can only imagine a dozen people in a, in a tiny Hong Kong apartment. And you saw pictures of the kitchen I sent to yeah. you. It is yeah. not a kitchen meant to host parties of 12 but they just had the, they, there was just this huge meal and my uncle's like sit down and eat with us and they're like pulling out stools pulling out chairs there's people sitting not everyone was around the table at this point they're all crammed into various other spots in the apartment um this uh i guess I, the only way i can say is this uncle uh, you know 80 years old fully shirtless with an apron on is just serving up dishes um, on you know this metal table with a little plastic sheet on top of it and ended up pulling us in for a big family dinner and eric was and i i think eric puts the most aptly which is like there's no other way to wrap up a hong kong visit than than to have the big hong kong style family dinner i love that man 
I need to add Hong Kong to the list. That's it. I I I want yeah. I just I'm so happy that you got to have the experience that you have and um like what a I don't know. I hope everyone listening is as as excited as as I am cuz like this was just it was just so cool to see. It was just really cool to see. So go visit 9 ounces please and check out the highlight reels. Yes, for sure, for sure. And then, of course, I couldn't quite wrap up the visit yet when we were leaving Hong Kong. We actually had about a 20-ish hour layover in Taiwan. Uh, we were flying EVA Air, EVA Air, which is a, a, a Taiwanese airline, and they everything goes through Taiwan there. Yep. And we were looking at the layovers and the, the stops, and I said, Eric, like, why don't we just pick the flight that has a longer layover and it's rather simple to get into, take the airport express into Taipei and just eat our way there. Cause I've heard so many things about my Taiwan. My sister's husband is Taiwanese. My, my mom and my other sister has gone there and they all talk about it being such a fun place to go and a place to eat. I knew that we were going to be too tired to really enjoy an extended visit. Plus I need to get home and get back to work. Uh, life calls, responsibilities call. But we did a little whirlwind visit in Taiwan and I thought I was going to talk about night markets, but jokes, I didn't actually get out to any night markets because when we showed up, they were already closed. And by the time they opened the next day, <laughs> had we had to plane. leave. Yeah. But that that didn't mean I get I didn't get to eat to my heart's content. They were like twenty four hour beef noodle stalls. Oh wow! Uh, you know, just like literally just cooking out in the street. They're like cooking cheap cuts of beef, but they cook it down super super tender. You literally walk in, you you you, you sit down, sharing spaces with other people. You can go to the fridge where they have all these little side dishes in plastic bags. Literally, you just take out the plastic bags and you self serve yourself into little bowls, and then they charge you. And they slap a bowl of of springy noodles on your table along with some beef. And then you put whatever spicy sauces on it and you eat and you go. And um, there's a lot of that, a lot of hole-in-the-wall market streets. There were some Fujo-style ancestral black pepper buns when my sister insisted that I had to eat. And it was all extremely, extremely affordable. Like Taiwan is a place to definitely also stuff food in your face and your dollar stretches far well this has been a whole lot of you talking about your experiences i'll be honest the past couple weeks i I haven't you know what i actually did do something very exciting but i think we're going to touch on that in the next episode there are some uh, strange and wonderful things afoot on barton street in hamilton but if i can segue away you and I, we did do some fantastic work before you left for Hong Kong. Uh, so even though this is something you and I did, uh, I guess, about a month ago, it should be fresh to the listeners. We had a chance to talk with Arthur Gamma of Quinta de Boa Esperanza and Quinta do Cardo, two wineries in Portugal. Uh, you and I both love Portuguese wine, bang for buck, but it's also something that I plead a little bit of ignorance on like it's something i'm still trying to learn more about and uh crew wine merchants is a fantastic wine agency they're connected to stratus the uh interview was at loop line which is uh, a wine bar and bottle shop in toronto that is run by the people who uh who run crew wine merchants and um i i know in this podcast i said i'm adding hong kong to my travel list uh, I'm also, I, th- I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, Portugal is is hopefully next on the list, but uh, even more so after talking to Arthur. 
I'm super excited to go into this interview with them because Portugal is also on my hit list. So you and I recently got an email from uh, the great and talented Melissa Pulvermacher, who works for Crew Wine Merchants. And um, Crew has a very great portfolio. They're an agency that's connected to Stratus. Um, I think anyone who's looked at yours in my social media or follow Cellarit at Andre Wine Review and at Nine Ounces Please knows that uh, we are fanboys of, uh, or at least me anyways, I'm a fanboy of Zante's footsteps. Don't want to. Are you going to consider yourself a fanboy of that? or I, I, I am a fanboy of Zante's footsteps. <laughs> Emphasis on, on boy there, I guess. Uh, but we're when we got the email from Melissa, we weren't able to come to an event, which is why we're here at 10 a.m. And we are joined by Archer Gamma. You own two wineries. Uh, Quinta do Cardo and Quinta de Boa Esperanza. How's my Portuguese? Perfect. Excellent. Ooh, perfect. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna have to try and live up to that one after after you uh, so eloquently delivered the name. But we have uh, we have four wines in front of us that are white and red, and um, I think we're gonna just unpack some Portuguese wines in in general because this is something where like Maroki, you do some wine sales for another agent, and we've tasted some really great Portuguese wines that you have for sale, but. Portugal isn't something that I spend a lot of time drinking, and I think it's largely because I'm not familiar with it. I love Vino Verde, and I love Port, so let's let's go to school. Yeah, I'm super excited. I think maybe the quickest way to open up the conversation is have you, um, I guess, school us a bit in your two wineries, why they are unique. I know you, as you know, right before we hit record on this, you showed us a map of Portugal to just show us why Quinta de Cardo and Quinta, um, oh my goodness, de Boa Quinta da Boa, Boa Esperanza, why they're so unique from each other and why you've grown these two begins. Okay, so um, we started at Boa Esperanza, so this was our first um, vineyard that we, that we bought 10 years ago. And my idea of winemaking was, uh, so Portugal... It's quite unique territory, so different soils, different climates, different, and each region uh, that we have 14 are different, very different from each other. So I wanted to make my, a wine that has this Atlantic influence, and I wanted to buy something that was really close to the ocean because I wanted to make some punching white wines that was acidic and that was something really typical from uh, from that region. And I and I was looking and I was working with the. Uh, another winemaker at that time called Paula and uh, she was classifying all the grape varieties of Portugal and uh, she actually told me there is a valley that goes direct to the ocean that has this must in the morning that brings this salinity to the wines and this is, was our main focus at the beginning and um, so we bought that place we transformed, we transformed the farming also so we do everything in the a system that we call uh, produção integrada that is a, a sustainable that we don't use any pesticides we don't do try not to do any intervention on the on the vines and um, and then we work a little bit more on the winery to prepare the wines but everything it's as natural as possible so after that so we start to export actually we were already here in Canada with crew um, we had the opportunity to actually take Quinta do Cardo and also because I also want to have freshness on the wines but from a different side a different perspective and Quinta do Cardo is a historical vineyard it's 200 hectares so it means that it's 600 oh, wow. acres and he has one 
110 hectares of indigenous forests surrounding the vines and this is cork trees on an altitude of 750 meters and the historical fact that uh, Quinta do Cardo is the oldest organic farm in Portugal so they never have one treatment and I will explain why because we are so high the, the, the cycle of the plant is really short that means that everything starts happening like in end of May. So the time of the diseases, that is April, uh, March, April, doesn't affect them because they are totally hibernated. And so the cycle is really short and fast. So, and because we are in high altitude, we were able to preserve a lot of grapes that probably you never heard about it. And our king grape that I love, and this is the first one that we are tasting, is Syria, is his name. Syria? Syria, like the country. Syria, Syria. okay. Yeah. And um, so this grape variety, we actually own the, the oldest clones that exist. It's Prephiloxera, and it's uh, vines with more than 80 years old. So it's like quite unique. And when you go there and you see these granite stones and you see these vines planted, you can feel the energy of the place. And this is actually what makes us fall in love with it. You're like getting really... Like excited and enthusiastic, just talking about these, yeah, these prephylaxera. Because it's it's quite unique. When when you think about, I always think about this in viticulture. Is when you think about it, why these plants actually were there and survive, it's because they are really adapt to the to the to the soil and to the land. And this is this is actually our heritage. This is what we need to protect for the future, right? Because yeah. it's really easy to bring Cabernet Sauvignon. Or, or any other foreigner grape to there implant and it probably will have more bigger yields. The issue is like we are destroying our own culture and patrimony. That is uh, that That's is something actually I actually love hearing you say because one of the things I have realized when I was traveling to Europe, so I just did a press trip to Greece this summer, is seeing the amount of Bordeaux and Rome varieties that they'd grown in there and the reason why they did is because they believed in order to become a player in the fine European market that they need to grow these French varieties and they've only really started learning to celebrate their own indigenous grapes. And one of the things I love about Portugal is that you still have and um, you still have make and celebrate your indigenous varieties. And Syria is actually new for me. I don't um, it's always exciting for me when there's a new variety that I haven't tasted yet. I'm like, oh, my God, I'm about to taste something new and different. Um, so this is from Quinta de Cardo. And you talked about elevation. You talked about these cork trees. And when you talked about these forests, like, do you find that they, um, I, I think, you know, the impact of anything uh, always, like, everything has an impact on the terroir. So you talked about these cork trees, and what do you feel like, what kind of influence do you think they have on the vines? There's a lot of impact on the vines, because all, all the forests uh, connects, right? So the roots where, they, where, they, where the vines feed, they feed the same uh, terroir as also the, all the rest of the trees and then sometimes there's some years that we that you can actually have it on the on the on the flavor of the wine some resin that we have from the pine trees or some some that type of notes and we know where they came from uh, and um, and it, it's quite interesting because uh, there is not a lot of places in the world that you can actually uh, connect with the rest of the biodiversity of the of the land right so lands are normally tied to be small and uh, when you have a space like this it's it's quite unique uh, i think i can smell it the red yeah. that you were well, talking there, about there's also an interesting like salinity to, there to this wine too in both of these actually i haven't tasted the, the the second white yet but, but before we we get to that i actually have a question about the indigenous varieties and selling the wine like i love what you said about your your trip to greece it's something i noticed in chile as well as you have people starting to reclaim some of the um 
you know indigenous and origin vineyards bringing them back to life and i think it's becoming really popular in italy that some of the smaller regions are embracing the indigenous varieties do you find that the export markets are taking more interest in the indigenous varieties and are maybe moving away from the safe buy when you walk to the shelf of a liquor store or wine store actually we we find that all over the world so we export for 31 countries and everyone are much more interested in the in the, in the indigenous grape varieties. Yeah, that's exciting. Because this is actually the you know diversity is actually what makes us all of us love wines. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that well, don't get me wrong, I love a, an incredible Cabernet Sauvignon or Cabernet Franc from Canada, and I love it, and I've been drinking a lot uh, with yes. Charles, <laughs> and uh, and I think Canada should be more in the world because yes. people need to actually try these wines and but for Portugal it's the same we have a period of time that people were planting syrup people planting grapes that doesn't belong to us and uh, you know it's really hard when you go to the world and you then you're going to compete with the people who actually make the original uh, syrah or the original Cabernet Sauvignon and it's really hard Portugal is old world so we have 270 grape varieties planted from Portugal Amazing. and this is our patrimony this is our culture if you don't if you don't show that it, it, the wine world will be poor right and this is what we're trying to do in our in our properties we just want to work with indigenous grape varieties and it's our main focus i love that um i want there's a there's a there's a question i want to go back to when we get into the reds but i feel like this is a moment to kind of pivot over to i'm putting myself on the spot to say this name over and over again um quinta da boa esperanza I want to talk about this region a little bit because I think the the Lisboa is it Lisboa or Lisboa Lisboa. It's not as well known over here. I would say I would say like when I'm tasting wines from Portugal, it's predominantly from Douro or um, Alentejo. You know, like um, or Alentejo. Like they're the regions. These are the regions that come to Canada. At least it's what I see on the shelves. And you talked a lot about coastal wines in this region and i for those of you who you know decide to pull up a map of portugal while uh, listening to this podcast you're looking kind of towards the east side looking into the ocean um the lisboa region almost looks like a i wouldn't say it's like a full-on peninsula but it kind of juts out a little bit you were speaking about how there's a really famous wave there that a lot of surfers love going to let's talk about the atlantic influence on on the white that we're about to taste so quinta da boa esperança that is our first baby and um that that was our idea we knew uh that we wanted to make an atlantic wine and this when I, when i have this in mind was like okay i want i want to have the power of the waves that's showing in my in my wines i want to have like this freshness and when you think about portugal and be on the ocean and eat some grilled fish i wanted to have a wine that will that and and uh, because we make wines for food normally this is our main principle and we work with chefs and with restaurants and this is how we start uh, designing our portfolio so when you taste this wine uh, Rintu that is an indigenous grape variety from Lisbon region uh, so the second white is Arintu Arintu yeah uh, so Arinto is a grape variety that is now planted a little bit all over Portugal and uh, exists in Vino Verde uh, and, it, and um, it's known per uh, acidity like it's have, has like this full mouth and uh, citrus and, and this is for me uh, the representation of Portugal 
on a white grape variety. So if you think about it, sometimes I close the eyes, I s take a sip of a rinto, and I feel automatically like in front of the ocean eating a grilled fish, and, and you have that feeling. So a rinto was a grape variety that was actually saved by the Duke of Wellington uh, during the French invasions. And... Um, he loved it so much that he actually forced all the farmers around Lisbon to plant it more. And this is why we actually have more Arinto now. And it's a region called Bucellar that is uh, 15 minutes from our vineyard that he started. And, uh, and now it's, I think it's the grape variety that we are the obligation to protect for the future. As we wrap up here, I know one of the things I noticed uh, when I was visiting the Quinta de Boa Esperanza website was the tourism element like you, you know this i i know um andre's talking about how he wants to go to portugal next year portugal has been on my hit list forever i would say that those are my my honeymoon goal dreams i'm getting married next fall so um and, and one thing i noticed is like the the conversation of just not you know getting super technical about the wine but the experience you, you know the, the website talks about the farming it talks about the people it talks about this kind of cultural almost like um oh what what do i want to call it this like um, energetic element and you know even on your even on your website you talk about kids parties you're like people can come and taste wines but you can come and have parties so you can experience the farm and the animals and there's like it really shows the the, the kind of massive impact that uh, that wines have because it when you say from vine to table the vines extend all the way to farming and it extends the communities around it so maybe in our closing words like Bring people to Portugal. Why should they come in and visit the region and experience everything that Wines of Portugal or Quinta de Boa Esperanza or Quinta de Cardo is about? So, so in Boa Esperanza, it's quite uh, funny because when, when we built uh, our house there, and uh, and I have a, when we bought it, my daughter was seven years old, and we want to create this magic of her because we were so excited to build the things we wanted her to feel great while we were working. At the same time, she could have fun in the, in the vineyard, so we start bringing little goats and chickens and rabbits, and, and we have a donkey and, and all of this, and we have our own vegetable garden, and then our friends start coming, and everyone, chefs coming, and okay, you have this and that, let's do some lunches. And the first years, was everything was private. Uh, but uh, as we start having so many visits, people knocking at our doors, so, hey, okay, can we visit the vineyard? And then we open to tourism. And because we are so close to Lisbon, it's just 45 minutes from, from Lisbon, central Lisbon, to the vineyard. So we start having all these people coming on the weekend. We have that need to actually create more like uh, people can go surfers always go and go visit and have an afternoon tasting the wines and it's, it's quite fun because end up like and we are in a really small town uh, that we give opportunity to a lot of people of, of the town also to work with us and to you know increase their business around the one vineyard and that's actually spectacular I'm already there <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Artur, for giving us the time, Thank going you. through the the wines here, and um, you know, sharing the, the quality of these wines. It's it's really a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much. Okay, I want to sneak one more question into run as like a separate thing. So you're here in Toronto, and for people living in Toronto, when they think of Portuguese cuisine, they think of barbecued chicken because that's <laughs> what exists in Toronto. But I know from visiting Portugal that it's mainly seafood. Yeah. What is your favorite local dish that you think everyone in Toronto should taste to reevaluate what it is, Portuguese so, cuisine? I think uh, 
arroz de marisco. So it's like a, a seafood rice that you can that I'm from Irisara, my hometown. It's a little fisherman town and uh, and they make this it's like your grandmother cooking for you and it's fabulous and people should actually once in their life try that. You know, Maroki, I, I don't think we've ever had an episode of Tasting Together that has a moral or like a message, like an after school special. But after listening to you talk about Hong Kong and listening to Arthur talk about his family's wines and some of the cooking in Portugal, I think the moral is everyone listening to this podcast should pick a, a, a restaurant at random and go try something new. I think that is amazing words to close out the podcast by given that we are lovers of food and drink. We are lovers of hospitality. And I think we're lovers of experiencing life to the fullest. And I think the best way to do that is to break past your boundaries. I think that's as good a place to leave as any. Make sure you uh, share and like and leave a review for this podcast. We're still trying to grow our audience as we're uh, fledgling and new off the ground. So we appreciate everyone who's taken the time to listen to this. And uh, you can always follow us on social media at Andre Wine Review at 9 ounces, please. Oh, I guess I get the last word this time. I was I was deliberately holding back. <laughs>